Now please join me by taking your Bibles and turning with me to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to be reading today beginning in verse 26 to verse 39. That reading begins on page 865 of our ESVs. Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 26. You are aware that it often uh, happens that interesting things uh, happen when Jesus shows up in unexpected places. We are going to be looking today at an unexpected place for Jesus to be. You remember uh, when Jesus was in Samaria, the kind of place that no self-respecting Jew, it was thought, would ever go, speaking to a woman all by herself, and by the end of that conversation, a woman whose life had been changed, uh, going away and telling others about Christ. Well, here we see Jesus going to another place that no self-respecting Jew would ever go. Uh, it begins uh, by telling us that they sailed to the country of the Gerizines. Your uh, translation, depending on what you might have, uh, might say the Gergesines uh, or the Gadarenes. There, there's a little bit of uh, a volley back and forth between the scholars as to what exactly the name of this place was, whether it was uh, uh, Gadara uh, or Gergesa or Gerasa. Uh, but uh, no matter uh, what they think it might be and, and what it actually was, we're, we're all sure Uh, that it was opposite Galilee, across the Sea of Galilee, and that it was a Gentile territory. You'll see that by the hogs that are being raised there. Uh, But this is the place where uh, no Jew uh, would normally go, and yet Jesus goes there. It seems intentionally uh, to do battle with the evil one. So we're going to see this familiar passage today uh, in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. We're going to read to the end of verse 39. And before we do that, please... Uh, Go together with me in prayer again as we seek the Lord's blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it exposes not just the evil out there in the world, but the evil of sin and temptation in our own hearts. We pray that you would cause us to look to Christ, the one who is able to deliver us from every evil, the one who keeps and sustains his people by his sovereign power, Lord, help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior today and cause us to have greater faith and greater worship for Him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's Word as we find it in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time He had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert." Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened... They fled and told it in the city and in the country. 
Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. In uh, May of 1945, Thomas Stafford committed what he later described as two very stupid mistakes. Uh, Stafford was just 21 years old. He was a young sergeant serving the U.S. Army in World War II, and by this time in, uh, in the war, uh, he and his unit were pressing along the borders of Czechoslovakia. Uh, they were cleaning up territory from the Nazis as the Nazis were retreating uh, to the east. And in a certain house, Thomas Stafford, together with his men, captured 30 German soldiers, including a colonel who had ditched his uniform, perhaps in an effort not to be taken for a colonel and taken as a prisoner. But they found them, and they found him and interrogated him, uh, and later found out uh, through that interrogation that there was a command post for a very large unit of the German army just a few more miles into Czechoslovakia. And so Thomas Stafford... Uh, hung a white sheet over the front of his Jeep. He loaded up the colonel in the front seat and put his pistol between his shoulder blades and commanded his driver to take them behind enemy lines. That was the first mistake. The second mistake uh, was that he neglected to inform his own captain of what he was doing. And so off they went. Uh, Jones, his driver, and Stafford and the colonel uh, very nervously sitting there, I'm sure, and they meandered for the next several hours past 12 miles of motorcycle troops and panzers and machine gun nests until they came uh, to the uh, division commander for the troops in that area. Well, Stafford uh, spoke to the general who was in charge of some 20 other generals there, uh, and with a little bit of artistic license, he told them that the Americans were beginning another advance from the West. He told them the Russians were closing in from the East, which actually was true. And he told him that he was a captain, and he had been sent behind enemy lines with strict orders to accept the unconditional surrender of all the German army in that area. Well, there was a lot of conversation that Stafford didn't understand. It was untranslated for him. And uh, with a few hours of conversation between them, the Germans agreed. And orders were written in both English and German. And the commanding general handed over his personal sidearm as a sign of the unconditional surrender of 40,000 troops under his command. It is the kind of story that uh, you think should have been made into a movie. And it's kind of amazing that it hasn't been, but it's true and you hear something like that, and you wonder, well, why on earth uh, would this general, this German general with 30 years of battle experience, surrender his army to a kid in a dirty uniform, barely out of high school? 
There are a few details that make sense of the whole scenario, though. One is that no matter how old he was or no matter what his rank, Stafford was there representing a power that was greater than himself. He had been drafted only in 1943, but he was there on Omaha Beach just 11 months earlier. And in the period of 11 months, that force that he was a part of had pushed all the way to the eastern side of Nazi-controlled Europe. There was this amazing force, this power that he represented, and, and the general knew that. And second, by, the time, uh, by this time in the war, defeat was already on the German horizon. This all happened on May 6, 1945. Hitler had been dead for a week. The very next day, May 7th, Alfred Jodl surrendered the entire German army to Eisenhower, and we remember that as VE Day, war in Europe was over. And so despite the display of force, a superior power and an inevitable defeat led the Germans to surrender. Well, 19 centuries earlier, a foe, an enemy far greater than the Nazis, encountered a power far greater than the Allies. And the truth, the reality of an impending defeat led Satan's armies to give up their post. I don't, I don't want to press the analogy too far. <laughs> but uh, what we see in this passage is, is the reality of spiritual warfare. We see battle lines being drawn. We see hordes, scores, a, a legion perhaps of, of demonic forces drawn up and, and ransacking the landscape of this man and his life. And then we see Christ, the hero triumphant, stepping over uh, the enemy lines and demanding surrender, coming in power, coming with authority, coming with the reality of defeat. And that's what this passage is about. It's about seeing the victory of Christ over Satan. It's about showing us who Jesus is. It's about showing us why he is worthy of our worship. This passage before us uh, is all about spiritual power. In fact, there are three powers on display here, and we're going to look at them each in turn. We're going to look first at a destructive power at work in this man, second, a delivering power at work through Jesus, and finally, the dividing power of the gospel message. A destructive power, a delivering power, and a dividing power. We're going to start by looking at the destructive power. That's the power of Satan and his hosts at work in the world. Verse uh, 27 tells us that no sooner had Jesus stepped out on dry land that he was, he was met by a man who had demons. The plural is used there as an indication of what's about to happen. Now, we've, we've encountered demonic influence, demonic possession before in Luke's gospel. It's been a while, and so perhaps uh, it's worth reminding ourselves that when Luke points out demonic influence, it's not just sort of an ancient way of understanding mental illness. That's the way some skeptics of Scripture try to explain this whole thing away. Well, Jesus went over there and there was this schizophrenic man. Uh, there was this suicidal maniac who, who should have been institutionalized, but that's not how Luke presents him. Remember, Luke is a man of medicine. Luke is a man of science. He's a physician. And regularly in his gospel, he differentiates between natural illness and spiritual attack. And he is clearly pointing out that this is a spiritual force at work in this man. There are several details in the text that make that clear. You see, first, that this man comes to Jesus with a supernatural knowledge. Several weeks we've been wrestling with this question, who is Jesus? And it seems like nobody can get it right. The crowds, the disciples, 
Everybody's wondering, who is Jesus? And this man has the answer. It's a reminder, actually, that demons are pretty good theologians. The demons believe that God is one. It doesn't help them at all, but they know the truth. The demons believe uh, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. That's what they call Him. They believe that He will render judgment against them in the day of the Lord. This man comes trembling before Jesus, not because he's deranged, but because he's demonized. He has this supernatural knowledge. He also has a supernatural strength. Every human restraint has been used to try and keep him in check. He's been kept under guard. He's been bound with chains and shackles. That means his hands and his feet. The scripture tells us that he would break those bonds and be driven into the desert. So we see this man under the influence of evil under the influence of Satan and his armies. But there is a a greater indication, a primary characteristic of demonic power that's at work here that we see, and that is the destructiveness that has ruined this man. Notice the way that under the power of these demons, this man has become subhuman. In fact, it, it tells us in negative terms. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house. It's telling you all those normal things that humanity does, the bare necessities of life. He's not clothed. He has no shelter. He goes about like a rat, like a a cockroach. He lives like an animal, scurrying around where the dead bodies are rotting away in the graves. He's been dehumanized. He's been destroyed. Mark chapter 5 tells us he had become a danger to himself. And everybody around him, it tells us, Mark chapter 5, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It was a terrible sight. One commentator says that he was a festering mass of lacerations, scabs, and scar tissue. He lived among the dead, and he looked like a walking corpse, and if you had been there, he would have turned your stomach just to see him. Every grace and dignity of humanity has been taken from this man. He had been made a captive. He had been enslaved for the purpose of self-destruction. And that is the perfect picture of the power of Satan at work in the world. Be careful that we don't overstate this. Sometimes people come and they say, well, this is a picture of exactly how sin works in your life. Well, well, yes, but no. This is an extraordinary situation. That's the point here. Not that this is the ordinary way that Satan and his, his minions work in the world, but this is an extraordinary event. This is extraordinary uh, captivation by, by the demonic powers. He told Jesus that his name was Legion, and that's a dodge, really. That's, that's a way of saying, actually, there are more demons here than you'd care to count, quite frankly. A legion was the largest fighting unit in the Roman army, somewhere around uh, 6,000 fighting soldiers together with their uh, commanders, together with support crews, uh, and and Rome dispatched the legion anywhere that it wanted to have an overpowering show of force. If they wanted complete and utter subjugation of the people in a region, they would send a legion. And this man had this concentration of demonic power within him that that I think you and I have never encountered, probably will never encounter, and, and probably can't even imagine. And so we don't want to overstate what's going on here, yet yet we can move from the extraordinary to the ordinary and see that that what's going on in this man's life is the same way that Satan works in all places that he works in the world. What is Satan's aim in the world that God has made? It is destruction. 
It is to tear down the work that the Lord is doing, if, if he can at all. Satan puts all of his power, he puts all of his ingenuity into trying to destroy the works of God. That begins with destroying humanity. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, how did God create man? What is God's work? The answer is this, that God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Now, what do you see in this man under the influence of these demons? Well, you don't see that, that knowledge. He, he hardly knows what's going on, I think. He's, he's, uh, he's this man who is uh, given to fits of, of lunacy. He has no dominion over the creatures. He doesn't even have dominion over himself. He is completely lacking in self-respect and in self-control. And yet, even without demonic oppression, that's how sin works in the human heart. Sin ruins the image of God in man. It turns men and women away from holiness, away from self-control. Sin enslaves us to our lusts and to our passions. At first, sin entices, and then it enslaves. Kent Hughes writes that it's not at all incidental that the rise of occultism and Satanism in recent years has been accompanied by increasing drug abuse, pornography, self-harm, and obscenity. See, Satan loves sin. He loves temptation. He loves those things that will enslave us and destroy us and lead us to destroy ourselves. Satan's like the dealer on the street corner. He'll give you the first high for free. He'll whisper in your ear the lie that says, no, 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 it's not going to cost you. Sin is easy. Sin is freedom. Sin is enjoyable because he knows that once you take that first hit, you'll be a customer for life. And he doesn't care about how you destroy yourself. In fact, that's part of the fun. That's what he's after. Satan is after destroying humanity through temptation and slavery to sin. But he's also working to foster fear and hatred of Jesus. Verse 28, this man fell at Jesus' feet. He proclaimed that he is the son of the most high God. Now, if you were to do that, perhaps that would be an act of worship, but not this man. He's not worshiping the Savior, but the demons within him are crying out, pleading that they would not meet their fate that they know is coming. They are fearful of Jesus. They hate Jesus. The same thing is true in the rest of the world. You notice the antagonism and the fear of Jesus everywhere around us. It used to be that people that disbelieved the gospel would downplay it. They'd, they'd sort of brush it off. That's, don't tell me about that fairy tale for children. Don't tell me about resurrections and miracles and angels and demons and those things. I could find that in any storybook, and they would make light of it, but not anymore. Do you notice the way that increasingly in our culture, Christianity and the gospel message is being labeled as dangerous, harmful, hurtful? Phil Zuckerman is a professor of sociology. In 2014, he wrote an article for Psychology Today. The title of the article is, Does Christianity Harm Children? He goes on, no surprise what his conclusion is. His conclusion is yes, but he goes on to claim that the gospel of Jesus, he says, is totally, horribly, absurdly sadistic, counterintuitive, and wicked. He goes on to list doctrines that he says are harmful to children, doctrines like original sin, doctrines like the substitutionary atonement of Christ, 
And it seems, as we look in the world around us, that that kind of attitude is increasing. But it's not. Actually, it's always been there. That's what Jesus said in in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see here some of Satan's destructive tactics. You see his power in the world. He's out to destroy humanity. And typically he does it if he can by making them slaves to sin and fearful of the only one who can set them free. Now, as Christians, we need to take the power of Satan very seriously. If you are a believer, if you trust in the Bible, you believe in the supernatural. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is working in your life, giving you faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, you also believe that there are Uh, there are evil spiritual forces at work in the world. This is a reality. We are not anti-supernatural here. We need to take this very seriously. But for the believer in Christ, we do not need to be afraid of Satan's power. That's because in Christ there is a delivering power at work, one that is greater and far more powerful than Satan could ever imagine. This is our second point. We see the delivering power of God at work in Jesus. You may remember uh, the name Rhonda Rousey. Uh, Rhonda was, uh, for a while, a household name in the United States. She was, at one time, undefeated. Uh, She was the most feared female fighter in mixed martial arts. Uh, In 2015, she lost her first bout. She lost her title uh, to a woman named Holly Holm. But then in December 2016, uh, Rousey was scheduled for a comeback. As you regularly see with these sorts of things, they assigned a media crew to to show you how she was training, to see how she was preparing for this big title match when she was going to come back. They put out out posters with with Rhonda's face and big, bold letters, she's back. And she went on uh, late-night television to promote the whole event. And and for that reason, partly for the the promise of a a good fight, UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, 207, excuse me, I don't watch enough of this stuff. Uh, UFC 207 sold 1.1 million pay-per-view subscriptions. 1.1 million people shelled out hard-earned money, arranged their schedules, probably hosted parties so that they could watch the champ come back and regain her title. And that means that there were 1.1 million people who were disappointed when Rousey was knocked out 48 seconds into the first round. Now... I will save my evaluation for female blood sports for another sermon and simply say, I wonder, I wonder what a promotional poster for the fight in Luke chapter 8 might have looked like. I wonder what the odds uh, the bookies would have given if they were collecting bets on this showdown between uh, the carpenter turned prophet versus the legion of demons. I wonder how many people would pay to see it. If anybody uh, would pay pay-per-view uh, prices to see that, uh, that fight, they would have been disappointed. It was over before it began. There was no contest. That's because Jesus, the divine king, wields supreme and unquestioned power over the spiritual world, demons included. 
And again, there are a few details that make that clear here in the text. First, you notice uh, the disparity between the demons and Christ. You notice the way that the demons can only beg while Christ commands. Take a look at verse 28. The demonized man cries out, I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Verse 32, there was a herd of pigs and they begged him to let them enter these. The demons are begging. It's all that they can do from the get-go, and yet Jesus commands. At best, he permits. You see, in the presence of this superior power, the demons can do nothing. Their power is, is evaporating. They go from devouring this man to getting whatever table scraps they can get. They can't even harm a herd of pigs by their own power. So we see this superior power in Christ, and we also see the inevitable defeat. I think it's pretty telling that these demons who had tormented this man are so worried about being tormented themselves. It's the very first thing on their minds when Jesus shows up. They fall at his feet and they beg uh, that the Lord would not torment them. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, records another detail. It tells us, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not just to torment them, but to torment them before the time. That is the, the appointed time, the final time, the final judgment is what is in their mind. You see, they know what's happening. They know that Christ will come to judge men and angels. They know that they will be cast into the lake of fire prepared for them. That's why they beg not to be sent into the abyss. The abyss is the same word that's translated bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 20, where it tells us that that ancient serpent, that great dragon, will be chained and thrown into the bottomless pit, kept in preparation for the final judgment. And here we remember that demons are actually pretty good theologians. J.C. Ryle says, even if men do not believe that there will be a judgment and a hell, the demons certainly believe that. They know what this means. They know that Christ's presence was about far more than a single skirmish on a hillside. They, they know that because He's come, their judgment is as good as done. They know that this conflict is a signal of the end of Satan's reign of terror on humanity. That's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. What's the power of Satan in the world? It's the power of slavery and fear of Christ. It is the power that, that debilitates and dehumanizes and entraps sinful man with the fear of judgment. The scriptures tell us that become, because Jesus has come in the flesh, the demons know that the great destroyer is about to be destroyed. Now apparently, uh, demons can inhabit uh, more than just human hosts. And so it's been uh, for a long time a scholarly pastime to, to look at this this whole thing with the pigs and, and sort of uh, scratch scholarly heads and stroke scholarly beards and say, we wonder what's happening. We, we'd like to speculate here about what's going on. And, and so there are all kinds of questions. Questions about what this means for Jesus. 
Bertrand Russell wrote his, his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, a collection of essays. And this was one of his arguments. He said, I can't believe in Christ because he's clearly not a virtuous man that he would allow this herd of pigs to be drowned uh, in the Sea of Galilee. And so people ask these questions. What does this mean about Jesus? What did it mean for the economy of the place? What did it mean for those who had lost these pigs? They ask, well, well, were these pigs being kept by the Gentiles in the region, or maybe they were, they were compromising Jews, and so maybe this was a sign of judgment on those who were across the lake doing what they shouldn't have done, and all kinds of questions about the pigs, but the point is not the pigs. In fact, what happens to the man is far more interesting than what happens to the pigs. We find here that the drowning of the pigs was really just about showing us this undeniable evidence that the man at Jesus' feet had been healed of something other than mental illness. You don't take a schizophrenic and, and transfer his schizophrenia to a herd of pigs. However that happens, and it's a mystery, and I don't have answers for some of those questions, however it happened, but it was evidence this man had been delivered from the power of the devil. And all the herdsmen who were there saw it, and they knew it. In fact, they saw the difference that this power of Jesus, this delivering power had made in this man. What was the state of this man before he met Jesus? He lived like an animal. He wore no clothes. He, he didn't live in a home. He, he shrieked and he cut himself at morning and, and noon and night. He was a danger to himself. He was a terror to everybody around him. He was a terrible state to everyone who knew him, but now he was a disciple. Verse 35, it says, the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. What did they see? They found the man from whom the demons had gone. That is, in the second half of this passage, that is Luke's typical description of this man. It's past tense. The man from whom the demons had gone, they found him sitting at the feet of Jesus. They found him clothed. They found him in his right mind. They found a man who had been changed and healed and delivered. They found a disciple. Notice that he's sitting at Jesus' feet. That's what a disciple does. That's what Mary did, at least. Her sister Martha is busy with many things and preparing many things and, and is huffing about because Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus. That's what it tells us. Luke chapter 10, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She was a disciple. She chose the better portion. She was at peace with her Savior. She was filled with love for her teacher and her Lord, and, and so was this man. His life had been the embodiment of the worst-case scenario. It makes you wonder how long ago his family had given up and just stopped praying for him. It makes you wonder how many parents would, would warn their children, you don't want to be like him. They don't make the wrong choices in life. That's what can happen. And they would point to this man that everybody knew. He was like the town drunk. You couldn't avoid him. You saw him everywhere. And you tried to avert your eyes, but he was always making a scene, and you always saw him there. What a terrible sight. I wonder how frustrated and depressed this man had become with his own condition. He had to have had moments of lucidity where he realized how bad it was. He had to realize how hungry he was, how cold he was on those nights. He probably realized how he smelled like the vermin that inhabited the tombs where he lived. 
in those moments of clarity, if, if only somebody could help, but what could he do? And nobody knew where to find the help that he so desperately needed. And one day he met Jesus. And that demonic haze lifted for good. And he was healed. The delivering power of Jesus turned this self-destructive man into a disciple. And that brings us to our, our third point. We've seen the destructive power of Satan. We see the delivering power of Jesus. And finally, we see the dividing power of the gospel. Because there was such a dramatic change in this man from, from demon-possessed to disciple that everybody who saw it was terrified. There is this division. You see the result of what happened in this man when, when the truth of salvation and healing comes to him. You see the effect of his deliverance. This man wanted nothing more than to be as close to Jesus as he could be, and the people who were there were so afraid that they asked Jesus to live, to leave, excuse me. And that's how it happens. Christ works deliverance. He saves people to himself, and it has this dividing effect. Some rejoice and, and others reject it. And we understand what's going on here, but we need to understand it uh, for what this really is. We need to understand this deliverance for, for how the demons understood it. It's strange, I think, that the demons are walking us through the theological points of this passage, but it's true. And so what did the demons understand about what was going on here? It wasn't just this personal miracle. It was a declaration of the power of Jesus to break the bonds of Satan. This was an enacted parable. It actually happened. It wasn't, it wasn't false. It wasn't put on. But in many ways, like the, the prophets of old would go around sometimes naked, sometimes bound, sometimes lying on one side for, for many days and doing all of these strange things so that people would look at them and say, what are you, what are you on about? What's this message that you've got here? When Jesus delivered this man, it had a message larger than the miracle itself. It was about Jesus and his power, his, his victory over Satan. What did we find when Jesus began his ministry? Well, he, he went about and he was proclaiming good news to the poor. He was proclaiming release for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind. He went proclaiming the kingdom of God and liberty for those who are oppressed. And now for this man, that, that has come true. He was oppressed, he was captive, he's been set free by Christ. And Jesus is proving again that he's come in to, to enter, to usher in the kingdom of God. But the fact that this happened in, in Gentile territory of all places is another indication that the gospel isn't just for the Jews either. Surely there were many in, in Galilee who were possessed by demons that Jesus could have cured, could have had the same effect as he did in, in the synagogue in Nazareth and many other places as people came to him. He could have driven out a demon and said, look what I've done, do you understand? But he didn't. He went across the sea into Gentile territory. Reminding us as we've been studying from Romans that the gospel is for the Jew and also for the Greek. That it has a reach beyond just the borders of Israel. In Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is taking hold. It's beginning the steady march that it will one day make from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The demons understood this as a message of victory, of conquest. It was a foretaste of the gospel of Christ. And so when that message goes out, when Christ's victory is preached among the nations, it has a dividing effect, and you've seen it. 
the gospel is preached, and there are some, it's usually a, a, a minority, there are some who believe. They embrace the good news. There's some, when the gospel is preached, that turn from sin and turn from wickedness and turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are often many more who reject that message. They turn their backs on the offer of salvation. Why would they do it, we say? Why would they ask Jesus to leave? The most wonderful thing that's ever happened in their midst, and they come to Jesus and they ask him to leave. Well, why would they do it? Why would they reject this one? We could answer that lots of ways. They were not chosen before the foundations of the world in Christ. That's why they didn't believe. They didn't believe because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. They didn't believe because in the moment their slavery to sin was more attractive than the freedom that Christ was offering. Certainly some of them did it for the same reason uh, that we've already seen, that they were afraid. That they're afraid of Christ and what His gospel will demand of them. They're afraid of the one who wields the power of deliverance. Maybe like Phil Zuckerman, our our sociologist friend. Maybe they're afraid of what a teacher who speaks of sin and sacrifice. Maybe they're afraid that he's dangerous. Maybe they're afraid of what his his doctrine will mean for their psychological well-being. And yet it happens today as it happened back then. Satan works this, this slavery to sin, this fear of Jesus, the deliverer. Leon Morris says, with all the evidence before them that a great miracle had been wrought, these people proceeded to reject the greatest opportunity of their lives. Instead of welcoming Jesus, the liberator from demons, they, seized with great fear, asked him to leave. And actually the most frightful part of this entire passage is that he does. We don't want what you have for us, Jesus. We don't, we don't want you here. We don't want your deliverance. We don't want your power. We don't want your gospel. You need to leave. And so he gets in the boat, and he goes back to the other side. And just as we saw in the synagogue at Nazareth when they rejected him there, he does not return. But he didn't leave them without a witness. That's the other side of the dividing power of the gospel is as Jesus' message goes out into the world, many reject it, but there are some that are brought near. There are some that experience deliverance firsthand. And their fear for Jesus is swallowed up with love for the one who holds the power of sin and death and hell itself. But how can you tell those who have experienced this deliverance? How do you recognize them? Well, they're the ones that want to tell everybody else what's happened to them. There are a few more surprises in the closing verses of this passage. One is is the fact that Jesus sent this man back home with a story to tell. That is unique. In fact, next week we will see Jesus doing the exact opposite. (laughs) We will see Jesus raising a little girl from the dead and telling her parents, don't tell anybody. Don't say anything about what's happened. Don't let the secret out what's going on here and who I really am. And yet he sends this man, go back and tell everybody. Tell your whole family what God has done for you. He sends him back with a story of his experience and his deliverance. Don't forget, this happened in Gentile territory. And this is a different place, and so messianic expectations are relatively low. 
over there across the lake. And, and this is the kind of place that, that Jesus' popularity isn't going to put him in the political crosshairs because of the things that he's doing and the word that's getting out. So that's, that's part of it. But this is also a place where in just a few short years, the gospel is going to come back. Although Jesus didn't return to the Gerasenes, the gospel came back. After the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus, the message of Christ was sent out into all the world. And when it did, there would be a people prepared. There would be a people who recognized one of their own who used to live among the dead and had been raised by the same power that raised this Jesus Christ that they were hearing so much about now. And so Jesus sent him back almost as, as a second John the Baptist, almost as a forerunner. He sent him from the wilderness into the city, a voice crying out to prepare the way of the Lord. He sent him back to speak of what God had done for him. And then there's a final surprise. It's a realization that the demons are not the only good theologians in this passage. Uh, the question's been on everybody's lips. Who is this Jesus? The disciples are asking it. And the crowds are asking it. Who is this one who forgives sin? Who is this man who calms the sea? Who is this one who drives out demons with a word of power? Who is he? And so far, we've seen in this passage that the demons give the correct answer, that he's the son of the Most High God, but so does this man. You see at the end, Jesus tells him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he does one better, in a sense. He went away, not only to his own home, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Who is this Jesus? He's, he's the son of the most high God. He is the savior who has the power to set prisoners free. He's the one who's come to deliver his people from the power of Satan. And if you know him, worship him. And if you worship him, tell somebody else what he's done for you. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this passage which most of us, truth be told, have heard before. Most of us have seen it. We know the truth that is contained herein, that you, O oh Lord, are the one who is sovereign and in control over the demons and the spiritual world. You are the one who is in control of all that you have made. O oh Lord, we pray that we would never tire of hearing the old story of Christ and his victory. Pray that you would cause us never to cease marveling at who Jesus is and the power that he has to save even the least of these, even the worst case scenario. So, oh Lord, help us to come in faith and rejoicing. And help us, even as we go from this place, to speak of all that you, through Christ Jesus, have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.